A convicted felon broke into a bank and stole the bank's hand sanitizer. He didn't take a dime. He did not take a single penny. He just took the hand sanitizer and left. You cannot make this stuff up. According to the Smoking Gun website, in what may be the least lucrative bank heist in history, this ex-con broke into a bank. He was in Iowa, and he escaped. It happened last week. Escaped with literally hand sanitizer. Mark Gray, the investigators say that Mark Gray used a tool to smash the glass door of a bank around midnight, entered the lobby, stole the Purell or the sanitizer, and then left. It's unbelievable A caller made the point, you know, Facebook and Twitter, they have been censoring Trump's tweets. They've been flagging them for violating their policy for spreading misinformation. And a caller says there is something very surreptitious going on here, something very nefarious. In addition to the fact that they're obviously censoring the president's tweets and conservative tweets and controlling the information that people are getting or not getting. But he says the deeper message here is they're trying to brainwash people into thinking that Trump is a liar. This is a really interesting point the caller's making. They keep censoring Trump's tweets. They flag it. They give us little annotations, little comments, asterisks, right, or whatever. So they're subconsciously telling voters Trump needs to be fact-checked. We need to tell you this is Trump's tweet, and now here we're going to give you the facts, as though, like, to paint Trump as a pathological liar. The president, he's a liar, okay? You have to assume just because he says something, don't assume it's true we'll let you know if it's true or not we'll be the real arbiter of the facts and it's a really fascinating point president trump's poll numbers meanwhile have been going up as we we've told you about a few recent polls but his real clear politics average of polls which is always a big you know very something very significant in terms of a signal of the direction the trend so that has been increasing as we'll get to in a moment Why are Trump's poll numbers increasing? Uh, Depending on how much stock you put into the polls, I understand that a lot of this, it's like, you know, you can't be too selective about this. Well, we like the polls when they show Trump gaining. We don't like them when he's trailing. But either way, Bill Stepien, look, that's the nature of it. You know, the the political analysts, they're always going to use the polls that work toward their agenda. I'm not going to do that, but I'm quoting you, Bill Stepien, who is President Trump's new campaign manager, and he says the bump in the polls is very simple. He says because his strategy is working, is succeeding, is paying off. Bill Stepien came in, of course, a couple of weeks ago. And what did he do? He had President Trump resume his daily briefings, or at least several times a week, President Trump gives coronavirus briefings. He does it by himself. He doesn't have Dr. Fauci. He doesn't have the whole task force there. It's President Trump speaking directly to the people. And a lot of people want to hear what the president has to say on a weekly basis about the pandemic. Also, he has changed his tone. This is a direct result of Bill Stepien, who has said to Trump, you need to appear more presidential. You need to be serious. People want a leader. They want you to take charge. They don't want you to just kind of shrug off and dismiss the virus. And Trump has done just that. He has totally changed his approach, changed his tone. He called wearing protective equipment an act of patriotism. So Bill Stepien says... The strategy is paying off. More people are tuning in. More people are watching the briefings and more people are taking a positive view. Think about it. It's fascinating that President Trump, the first few months of the pandemic, when his poll numbers were higher, what was going on? He was out there every day. He was giving the briefing. He was getting aired on many news channels, even CNN and MSNBC often frequently covered Trump's daily briefings that he gave with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, et cetera, and, and Vice President Pence. And the country was seeing him. They weren't getting it distorted through the mainstream media's 
prism of fake news. Right then, Trump gave up those briefings. His numbers have dropped. Is it all about the briefing? Probably not. But it is an interesting correlation there. And the real clear politics average uh, says that uh, Trump now uh, is trailing Biden by 6.4 percentage points. That's down from nine points a few weeks ago. He's still trailing. And if you don't believe in the polls, then doesn't I guess it doesn't matter. Although I think we're all you know very cautious about these polls. Meanwhile, President Trump is considering doing his acceptance speech at the White House for the Republican nomination. They're not going to have a big convention, of course. That's been called off. So there are still going to be speeches. There's still going to be a nomination, but it's all going to be very toned down. So And there's not going to be an audience. So where is Trump going to do give his acceptance speech? Well, now they're saying uh, it's going to happen at the White House, or at least they have floated that idea. And the Democrats immediately, Democrats, one after the next, dismissed the idea and said it's a, it's unethical and it's probably even illegal, like without even giving it any thought. Like, no, he can't do this. Well, why can't he do it? He just can't. He can't do it. Well, the Hatch Act will come up with some reason why he's not allowed to do this, but we're sure he's not allowed to do it. And it's like that's just their instinctive reaction is Trump can't deliver his speech from the White House, his acceptance speech from the nomination. There's got to be something wrong with that. Well, why? Because they don't want him to do it. Because they know that it the, the appearance, the, the, the White House as a backdrop, can you imagine a better backdrop for the acceptance speech, for the party nomination, than the White House, the incumbent president, actually, instead of going to some arena somewhere in, in, in Florida, North Carolina, Wisconsin, whatever, He's doing it, delivering it from the Rose Garden, from the White House, giving his acceptance speech. What could possibly be more presidential? I mean, can you, it would be breathtaking. So, of course, the Democrats don't want it. And then they're going to try to come up with some reason that it's violating some rule, some antiquated, silly rule that they have in Washington, which is not even true. So Bill Stepien, I'm sure, is pushing for this because he wants to. He's been trying to leverage the White House. He keeps telling Trump to do more campaign appearances from the White House, give speeches from the White House, the Rose Garden strategy they're calling it. So he wants to leverage, see the imagery of the White House as the backdrop for all of these appearances done by Trump because of now the coronavirus. He's not doing as many in-person rallies, obviously. Big fundraiser today and deal, by the way. We hope to find out some details about that for for tomorrow's show. I I would think so. Uh, that's what they're trying to do is leverage and maximize the White House as the backdrop for all these Trump events. So the Democrats, they're furious about this because they realize that it's it's something which should be a very effective strategy. So it's amazing. So they're all they're, they're all up in arms. These Democrats, they're in a tizzy. They're in a tailspin. So they're, they're claiming that it's a violation of the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act prohibits federal officials. They're always throwing the Hatch Act. It happens in bo- on both sides. When Democrats are in office, they kind of use it against them. Uh, basically, any federal government official is not allowed to engage in partisan political activities. So like they're not allowed to campaign. Kaylee McEnany, when she gets asked questions about Trump's campaign, you know, she'll wiggle out of them. She'll answer them in a way that doesn't violate the Hatch Act. And that happens a lot, you know, with, um, you know, other other Trump advisors, Kellyanne Conway, who get interviewed about the campaign. And then Democrats will accuse them of violating the Hatch Act. And there's really very little, I believe, that can be done to enforce it. But they do try to avoid violating it. So the Democrats say, well, Trump can't speak from the White House because that's a political uh, event and he's violating the Hatch Act. The problem is the president and the vice president are excluded from the Hatch Act. They're exempt from the Hatch Act. Think about it. I mean, the president, he can't campaign. Of course he can campaign. So the way they do it is they'll have like two different teams. They'll have 
the White House team, and they're supposed to not violate the Hatch Act, and then they'll be the campaign team. They're paid by the campaign. They're not federal government officials, federal employees, so they're not violating the Hatch Act, but they usually don't intermingle the two. But Trump and VP Pence, they're both exempt from the Hatch Act. So what's the problem? Well, the Democrats say, but there's going to be staffers there. They're going to be White House staffers, and they're going to attend the speech, and that's somehow going to violate the Hatch Act. I mean, it sounds absurd. All right, so, uh, but they, yeah, it's probably unethical. It's probably illegal. Why? Well, we'll figure out. They, like, assume automatically it's wrong. It's for sure wrong. This can't, He's not going to do it from the White House. And I could see Trump. I could imagine he may do it just to kind of spite them. All right, meanwhile, President Trump, uh, several days ago, there's a clip of him mispronouncing the name of Yosemite National Park. And I have to mention, I, I look, I need to do, Yaakov, why are you going to play a clip where President Trump mispronounces the name of a national park? Well, the answer is because if this were Biden, we have to be fair and consistent. I can't just pick and choose. And this should show you because we're always talking about Joe Biden's blunders and we never talk about Trump's blunders. It's not because I have some kind of bias and I'm only going in one. It's not because of that. It's because Trump doesn't have blunders. But the rare occasion when he does, I need to be consistent. Listen to this clip. When young Americans experience the breathtaking beauty of the Grand Canyon, when their eyes widen in amazement as Old Faithful bursts into the sky, when they gaze upon Yosemites, Yosemites, towering sequoias, their love of country grows stronger, and they know that every American has truly a duty to preserve this wondrous inheritance. Okay, so there it is. Yosemite. He kind of, you know, stumbled there for a minute. Yosemite, Yosemite. And it's spelled Yosemite phonetically. It would have been pronounced Yosemite based on the spelling Y-O-S-E-M-I-T-E. But the correct pronunciation, of course, is Yosemite. And it's inexcusable for the president of the United States not to know how to pronounce a national park. Now, is this a big deal? Of course, it's not a big deal. I mean, does this mean that Trump is having some kind of cognitive decline? No, not at all. He obviously either he just never knew the pronunciation, just read it. You know how a lot of people, they'll be like readers. So they'll like think you pronounce something a certain way because phonetically that's how it's spelled. But then it turns out the actual pronunciation. Look, the English language is a strange language that way. I mean, the word R-I-G-H-T, if you if a Martian came down and saw the word R-I-G-H-T, assuming he knew the alphabet, he would think that the word the, the word is definitely not pronounced right, okay, uh, with, with, with the G-H being silent. And there's a million of those. I mean, you don't knock on it. You knock on a door, right? That is a K in the beginning of it. And there's there's, there's 10,000. It's like you feel like, you know, in, in the, they always tell you in school that, well, English has a lot of exceptions to the rule. You almost feel like every single thing is an exception to the rule, right? I mean, so uh, I have no problem with this at all, except that if Biden or Obama did this, we'd be all over it. Biden, he wouldn't mispronounce the name Yosemite National Park. He wouldn't even know which country. He would, like, call it the Sahara Desert instead of Yosemite Park. But, you know, Obama once called the Marine Corps, he pronounced it the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps, of course, is spelled C-O-R. P.S. So Obama actually, as president, as the commander in chief of the military, he pronounced the Marine Corps the Marine Corps. Also, that was inexcusable. We should probably get the clip of that one of these days and play it. So I'm sorry the president needs to know how to pronounce. It's not like this is some foreign country, Yosemite National Park. It's it's in the United States, uh, Alameda County, California. Is plans to be uh, issue a stipend to people who need to quarantine after they're tested positive for COVID-19. And I'm I'm good with this. I have no problem. I think this is a very good idea. 
Uh, th- this to me is not universal basic income. This to me is not locking somebody in jail because they broke a quarantine. I, I like this. Positive incentives. I-, I think we need more of these. The government, they're always restricting. They're always banning things, especially Democrats. What about incentivizing people to do the right thing? How about that? A positive incentive instead of threatening them with a summons and going to jail. So I wish other places would follow suit here. Alameda County, California, when people are forced to isolate, to quarantine after they test positive, in certain situations, they are going to be giving a $1,250 stipend, $1,250 as a stipend. It's only for people who do not receive unemployment benefits or any sick leave. And what they're hoping is that this will encourage people to test for COVID-19 more frequently and to actually keep the quarantine and not break the quarantine, not violate it when they're supposed to be quarantining. So what are they doing? Are they threatening these people and saying, we're going to send you to jail? We're going to issue a summons? I mean, maybe they have those kinds of rules too. I don't know. But what they're really saying is, listen, we know it's hard to quarantine, especially you may be missing work. You may you may have, you know, have uh, other things that you want to get to, go to. You may have other events, you know, family members, whatever that you want to be with. Well, if you stay home, we're offering you $1,250 and they're thinking that'll even get people to test. People are going to want to test positive in some cases and actually want to quarantine. So I think this is a very good policy. To me, it's reminiscent of Republicans. A lot of conservatives, you know, people believe the media will have you believe conservatives don't care about the environment. And it's not true. Many conservatives do care about the environment, do want to reduce carbon emissions and reduce pollution, etc. They just don't want to crush businesses. They don't believe that you should crush productivity, crush businesses, force them to outsource jobs to China and other countries, uh, basically allow other countries to get ahead economically because the United States has these crushing restrictions. And uh, Trump, of course, reversed a lot of the Obama environmental restrictions that were crushing businesses. So Republicans, what they want to do to help the environment, they want to offer companies incentives, financial incentives. If you reduce carbon emissions, then we're going to give you a tax cut. We're going to give you a tax break. But, uh, you know, Democrats, they don't believe in that. They don't believe in people giving people money. They only believe in taking money away from people, at least people who earned it. They, They do like giving people money who refused to work. All right. So, of course, the relief, we have to get into the coronavirus relief bill package that has not come to existence yet, has not come to fruition because the negotiations for another round of coronavirus relief has crumbled. The negotiations have just totally collapsed, and they're still ongoing, and there's hope that it'll still uh, happen. But, uh, you know, the main things that are going to supposed to come out of this are they want to extend PPP, PPP expired, Payment Protection Program. Uh, of course, the $600 weekly unemployment checks that encourage, incentivize people not to work, those have uh, expired. Trump issued an executive order for a $400 weekly check, but the, the Republicans and Democrats cannot agree about that. And, uh, you know, a bunch of other things, but those are the main ones. That and a payroll tax cut. President Trump has actually put out an executive order for a payroll tax cut. And uh, as I said, the $1,200 relief checks, I don't know if I mentioned that, but the $1,200, they want to stand out another $1,200 stimulus check like they did several months ago. So all those things are on the table here. But the Democrats, they have a whole wish list of other things that they want. The Democrats want to spend $3 trillion. I believe they actually passed a bill in the House, a $3 trillion package. And President Trump and the Republicans say... Haven't we spent enough? No, they don't say that. They say we'll spend another trillion, maybe another trillion and a half, but we're not going to go a penny higher than another trillion and a half. The budget deficit this year is projected to be at this point something like three and a half trillion dollars. But let's not let that stop the Republicans. So it's like the spenders and it's like the big spenders and like the out of control spenders. And they can't 
come to an agreement. So what they're saying is Republicans agree, look, each one's blaming the other side. So they're playing the blame game, as they always do. And each one is saying that, listen, why are you holding it up? Uh, you know, uh, we, the American people need this package. And why is the other side holding it up? Why can't they just agree to us? Both sides are saying that. The, Re the Republicans are basically saying that the Democrats, they're asking for everything all at once. The Republicans are saying, listen, we're willing to come halfway, meet you halfway on a lot of these issues. So let's just agree on what we agree on past that now. And then we'll work out the rest later. And the, Demo the Republicans also say Democrats claim they compromised to, to brought it down from $3 trillion down to $2 trillion, and the, the Republicans say they didn't really compromise, they just shortened the time frame. So they still want everything, they just want it in a shorter time frame, and then it's going to expire sooner, and then they're going to have to renegotiate it all and still spend the money. So in, 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 just to give you some of the details here, in a memo to Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, she laid out, if you trust her version, she laid out to Democrats what, 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 where she and the Republicans still disagree and the holdup here in passing this bill. And as I said, Trump issued executive orders that it, that's going to cover some of the things. It's not, it can't cover everything. He can't do it all uh, as, as, a, as the president without Congress. But there are certain things he can do. At least his lawyers tell him he could do this. White House counsel, DOJ, they, they have approved this. But the Democrats are threatening to sue Trump, as we'll get to in a moment. So Pelosi says Democrats, they want $75 billion in COVID testing and treatment. The Republicans want $15 billion spent on testing and treatment. Pelosi says the GOP has offered $150 billion for states and local governments assistance. Well, the Democrats want $915 billion. So let me be clear about that. They're talking about they need the states and the local governments, many of which, by the way, have caused their own problems, but not all of them. They they need help. They need funding from the federal government. I, I shouldn't say need because you know what? Let them figure out how to pay their own bills. You know that that should be their job. A lot of them have been or have already been in very bad shape financially before the pandemic even hit. But either way, you know they're asking for money. So the Republicans have offered have offered 150 billion for states and local governments, uh, and the Democrats want 915 billion. That's almost a trillion dollars. The Democrats want to spend on state and local governments. I mean, that's just money that we simply cannot afford. And uh, they, they want the Democrats want schools schools to have money. Republicans have included 105 billion dollars for schools, but uh, uh, Pelosi says she wants a couple of hundred billion dollars additional to what the Republicans have offered in order to help schools reopen. And Pelosi wants money for food, food and utility assistance from the Republicans. So I mean, she has this whole long wish list. This time it seems she's not holding up. Remember the the previous stimulus package. Pelosi actually held up with just a bunch of, you know, goodies, a bunch of uh, uh, things that she was requesting for her bill that weren't even related to the coronavirus. She was just trying to use the pandemic, exploit it as an excuse to force the Republicans to pass things, to vote on things that Democrats have wanted for years. And of course, the Republicans stood their ground. And she also says she wants concessions from Republicans on ensuring a complete Census. I mean, so she wants the census somehow included in this in this relief bill, which is, of course, ridiculous. And by the way, the Democrats, it seems they want to bring back this what they call the salt tax deduction, state and local taxes, where you may recall there's a cap on that as part of the Trump tax cuts. They actually put a cap on deductions that one can take for their state and local taxes that they paid. And that, of course, hurt a lot of people in blue state states like New York, New Jersey, California, where they have high state income tax. So uh, people are not able to deduct their full state income tax and their full state 
property tax. Meanwhile, President Trump, as I said, he issued an executive order that would basically stop payroll taxes through the end of the year or defer payroll taxes. And then he says he is eventually going to make it that those those payroll taxes don't have to be paid back. At least the payroll taxes decide that the employee pays, not decide the employer pays. And Trump's executive order gives $400 in weekly unemployment checks. Now, the Republicans are saying to Pelosi, you could have gotten these things. Trump wants these things. He passed these as an executive order. So you could have come to an agreement. And what is Pelosi's response? She's actually threatening to sue President Trump. The Democrats are saying it's illegal for President Trump to issue an executive order where he's actually providing people with unemployment checks because any spending has to originate in Congress. It has to originate with the legislative branch in the House. As a matter of fact, that's by virtue of the Constitution, not not with the president, not with the executive branch. So they're saying that this executive order is unconstitutional. Now, uh, the, somehow Trump's legal team says that it absolutely is constitutional and it actually absolutely will win a court battle. I would think it depends on who appointed the judge, as we've seen so many times. So uh, if it's a conservative appointed judge, Trump will win if it's a, an, a, an Obama appointee. Although there are exceptions. There are times when even when even Republican appointed judges rule on the side of Democrats. It almost never happens in reverse. Occasionally, but much, much, much less frequently. Anyway, so what happened over here? President Trump is giving the American people money. And of course, the Democrats, they claim they're on the side of the American people. Congress is too dysfunctional to pass a bill. People are struggling. So Trump says, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. And the Democrats are going to sue to take that money away. And meanwhile, the Democrats are busy saying how they're the ones fighting for the people. Well, how do you explain the fact Trump is the one the Democrats couldn't get to come to an agreement with the Republicans? Neither side. They're all dysfunctional. So Trump says, I'm going to have to do this alone as, as an executive order. The media is saying, well, Trump... He always talked about Obama. He, he, he said that you can't do things with executive order. Obama took advantage of executive orders and he carried, got carried away. And now Trump is doing the same thing. I'm sorry that we're in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, the, the, you know, Trump views this as being a major, major crisis. You know, the media is the one that keeps telling us it's a crisis. But Trump's somehow not supposed to issue an executive order to help people. And the Democrats are busy telling everybody. And the media, like, they're not challenging the Democrats at all here. I mean, you're telling everybody that you're the ones fighting for them and the Republicans are the holdups. Trump says, I'm going to do this. Trump actually gives people $400 weekly checks and the Democrats are saying he can't do that. That's unconstitutional. He can't give out the money. Congress has to give out the money. Well, aren't you happy that at least the money is being given out? Now you're going to sue to take the money away that you're, you claim to be fighting for? All right, Ocasio-Cortez says, um, well, we'll get to what she says in a moment, but uh, a Democrat, top Democrat strategist says that Ocasio will likely not be speaking at the Democrat convention. So it looks like they are going to sideline Ocasio-Cortez, these Democrats. You know, she's supposed to be the, like the new poster girl. She's the new face of the Democrat Party, and uh, apparently not. I mean, or at least they don't want to admit it, or they're trying to sideline her, silence her, and uh, maybe kind of keep her out of the spotlight, out of the limelight. How great is this? Ed Rendell, former Pennsylvania governor, he's a top Democrat strategist. He spoke with Politico, and a reporter from Politico asked him if Ocasio-Cortez is going to speak at the convention. And he said, I don't think so. I think Bernie and Warren will, will speak. They will represent the progressive wing of the party very ably. So Bernie and Warren, they're the two progressives. I love progress. I mean, what, I mean, Bernie is a self-proclaimed socialist. He admits that he's he's somebody who has numerous times he has praised 
people, you know, the leaders of communist Soviet Union. Elizabeth Warren is uh, claims to not be a professed socialist, but she coincidentally had va- basically every single policy that Bernie Sanders stood for. Elizabeth Warren stood for as well. She supported almost all of Bernie's policies with like these minute exceptions. No, but he's a the different. Well, what's the difference between you and Bernie? Well, he's a socialist and I'm a capitalist. But but what's the difference? You you have all the same policies as Bernie. Well, I don't know. He calls himself a socialist, but yeah, we have the same policies. But I'm not a socialist. That that's that's Warren. So she and Bernie are going to represent the progressive, uh, aka socialist wing of the party. And of course, that's going to be a crushing blow to Ocasio Cortez because uh, you know her followers, her socialist followers, the the what what the media likes to call the fringe of the party, but what fright frighteningly is really becoming a very mainstream wing and a very large, and I'm going to prove that in a moment, very very large influential wing of the Democrat Party. They view Ocasio Cortez as being their leader a lot more than Elizabeth Warren. So is this going to kind of fracture the party? Meanwhile, Ocasio Cortez has challenged Governor Cuomo. Uh, on Twitter because of his uh, hypocritical policies or his uh, contradictory policies on the coronavirus. Uh, uh, Governor Cuomo has said that schools can reopen in person in New York State, but he is not allowing indoor dining. So he allows indoor schooling, but not indoor dining. Ocasio in a, uh, in a tweet said, quote, if it's not safe enough for indoor dining, what makes it safe enough for indoor schooling? So that was her question, and I actually, I sort of almost agree with her there. She's actually asking a very valid question. It's it, it's tough to say it. It's tough to admit, but uh, maybe I'm missing something, but Ocasio-Cortez seems to be right here against Governor Cuomo. And what is the answer? What is actually the answer you know, to this question? Why is Cuomo, what's the real answer? In other words, uh, Cuomo, as of right now, is allowing indoor schooling, but not indoor dining. And I don't believe that it's because, well, children are less susceptible to the virus. Maybe he's going to say that. But the problem, the reason I don't buy that, number one, these schools have a lot of adults. Uh, there's a lot of adults working in the schools. I understand it's predominantly kids, but it's a lot of adults. And number two, the... Um, the, 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 you know, kids can still transmit the virus, at least according, they, they don't have any conclusive research. Most things with COVID-19, they don't have conclusive research. But there's a lot of research that suggests that kids can still transmit the virus. So it still spreads the virus. Maybe they wouldn't themselves be susceptible to getting it, or maybe it would be asymptomatic or very mild, but they could still spread it. And then they go home and they spread it to family and it could still be pretty dangerous. You know, so what is, I don't believe that's the answer. I, I don't know the answer, but I suspect it's because Cuomo wants to keep the economy struggling. He wants to still, he wants the economy to struggle until November. I Look, I, I'm willing to come up. I don't like being, you know, having these theories about these Democrat leaders, you know, that they're so nefarious that they're really conspiring to keep the economy shut down before the election. But like, give me another explanation. All right, maybe that officially the explanation, as I said, is because kids are, don't transmit the virus as much. But again, that's very, very hard to believe. I said before that I was going to prove, you know, how radical the Democrat base is. Well, think about this. Sean Hannity made the point a couple of days ago. He said that Biden did the exact opposite of what candidates always do. On either side, Democrat or Republican, de- uh, in the primaries, these candidates, they always swing to, to the radical side of things because they want to appeal to the leftist base because, uh, you know, they want to basically broaden 
their voters, their, their voting base as much as possible in the primaries. In the primaries, they need to please everybody. So what they're going to do is, you know, the, the people who are most enthusiastic come out and vote in the primaries are the ones who are the most extreme. So candidates, historically, they almost always go to either the far right or the far left when they're candidates in the primaries, whether they're, you know, depending on whether they're Republicans or Democrats. And then in the general election, that's when they shift back to the middle. And the reason is obvious because the base is generally going to vote. You know, if you have a moderate, if I had a moderate Republican candidate, I voted for McCain. I voted for Romney because even though they were quite moderate and not conservative enough for my taste, they still way far were better, obviously, were a million times better than Obama. You know, so uh, I was going to vote for them, you know, but the, the moderates, the swing voters, they need to go to the middle to appeal to the swing voters. Biden did the opposite. You know, Biden ran as more of a moderate. And now as the in the general election, now suddenly he has adopted most of Bernie Sanders policies. Not he hasn't gone quite that far. But you look at the Green New Deal with Ocasio-Cortez. He's pretty much right there. And, you know, he has gone to, on immigration. Many, many, many uh, areas where Biden has sharply moved to the left. Why did he do that? Hannity says because Biden actually is afraid that he cannot attract the Bernie Sanders coalition. That, that coalition is so powerful, and Biden, you know, and they're so far radical left, they actually will not vote for Biden. Obviously, they're not going to vote for Trump for the most part. Maybe some would. I don't know. But uh, some of the Bernie Sanders supporters, you know, it's almost like they just want to renegade. They don't even know what their policies are. So they would actually maybe e- e- vote for either Bernie or Trump. Who knows? But uh, that's how frightened Biden is of losing the radical left base. All right, the Unity Coalition in Israel is now in danger of crumbling because they cannot agree on a budget deal. If no budget in Israel passes by August 25th, then the government would collapse. The very interesting system they have over there. And of course, if the government collapses, that would lead to the fourth election in Israel in what, just over a year, in a year and a few months. And look, there is a possibility that Netanyahu wants the government to collapse because right now he has a, his, the clock is ticking for Netanyahu. He's got the unity deal. And uh, in just over a year, uh, he's supposed to step down as prime minister and Benny Gantz is supposed to take over. And the, 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 there are polls that suggest that Netanyahu and Likud right now, if, the, if there were a new election held, they would actually have better results and they'd actually be able to, to, to form a coalition without having to have a unity deal with uh, blue and white. So that's pretty interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, caller asked me about Alan Lichtman. Alan Lichtman is the college professor who has this prediction model for presidential for presidential elections, and he has predicted the past nine elections correctly. So he's like one of the only people who predicts, you know, has these pre- modeling predictions for president the presidential election, who's gotten it right every time for decades. Now it's not exactly true, by the way, because. He actually predicted that Al Gore would win in 2000, and of course that ended up being neck and neck, and it ended up coming down to a Supreme Court battle, and and obviously we know how that ended. Uh, Bush won, Gore lost. He claims that he was correct because Gore won the popular vote. Uh, now, the popular vote is not enough to be correct because Trump lost the popular vote, but he still won the electoral vote. Obviously, he won the election in 2016, and Lichtman pre- uh, predicted that Trump would win in 2016. So he's not predicting the popular vote. He's predicting the winner. But he's going to tell you, yeah, listen, it was neck and neck and it was a toss up and the Supreme Court ended up ruling. So how is that something that he could have predicted? All right, I'll give him that. 
But uh, look, I'm not worried. Caller asked me, am I worried about this? The fact that he is predicting that Trump is going to lose. Did I mention that? He's, he's predicting as of now that Trump is going to lose. Now, number one, he says that could change. He hasn't issued his final prediction yet, he says, because things are still too volatile between the pandemic, the rioting, and, and just uh, there's just so much instability right now that he says he cannot predict the final prediction just yet. So I'm definitely not even going to think about this now. And in general, to me, this is kind of like the polls. I mean, it, it is interesting to me you know, that he's gotten it right, basically, the last nine elections. But, you know, I'm looking at the facts. I'm looking at, uh, you know, our interpretation of things right here. And to me, uh, I, I really still believe that Trump is going to win. Now, look, that could change. That that certainly could change. If it, it, it depends on the debates. There are a lot of things that this is going to de- depend on. But, um, but as of right now, I'm still very hopeful and very confident. And, you know, polls fluctuate. Even if you believe the polls, which, again, we've pointed out, how they may be very biased, but even you believe the polls, polls fluctuate a lot. But Lithman, his own analysis, here's my issue with his analysis. It's based on, I'll just read you a quote here from a story. Uh, Lichtman's analysis is based on the fact that Republicans lost control of the House in 2018. Trump has faced a number of scandals, including an impeachment scandal. He's had no major military or foreign policy successes, and he's not a military hero, nor is he charismatic. So, again, as I said, it's not a final prediction, but so many of these things that Lichtman is saying are just very, very hard. He says that you can't call Trump charismatic. To me, Trump is charismatic. Trump is 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 somebody who's viewed his base is so enthusiastic about him. He's one of the strongest presidents in terms of his persona, his demeanor, one of the strongest that I've ever seen. So Lichtman says, well, his uh, approval numbers have never broken 46, 47%. So, you know, no president who's really, truly charismatic can have approval numbers that cannot break the 50% mark. That's his point. Yeah, but what he doesn't realize is, listen, Trump is a polarizing figure. He's somebody you either kind of almost love him or hate him, right? There's almost no in between because he's so strong. The media has crushed him. He has a 92% negativity rating in terms of media bias. Media, 92% of the stories they report about Trump, the mainstream media, are negative stories. So we've never seen, this is unprecedented. So it's like, to me, the rules have changed. You know, everybody kind of has their run. This Alan Lichtman, to me, the rules have changed since he started making predictions years ago. And a lot of the things he says, look, he talks about the scandal, the impeachment. The scandals have been fabricated. The Democrats and the media have fabricated the scandals. I mean, that whole the whole Mueller thing was a hoax. And by the way, Trump uses social media masterfully to speak directly to voters. Twitter, Facebook, you know, tr- Trump, a lot of the reason he won uh, in 2016 was because he knew how to use social media. These politicians, I am sure the Biden campaign is clueless when it comes to social media. I know you're thinking, well, come on, how can they, they have to know this is something? I, I look at Biden's own Twitter account compared to Trump's. The, these people, these most political strategists, they're still living in the dark ages. You know, they're still, to them, TV commercials, television commercials are like the way you win an election. It's just bizarre. They don't get it. Plus, Trump's base is so energized. You know, yeah, you want to tell me he doesn't have the charisma to attract 65% approval numbers. His base is so they, so enthusiastic about him, especially compared to Biden, so energized. They come out in droves to vote for the man. They come out in droves for his rallies. So Trump has so many advantages. There are so many problems here with the model. This model, 20, 30 years ago, this is what elections were based on, even 10, 15 years ago. But you know the, the landscape has changed. The media has done everything they can to sabotage Trump, but there are still many, many Trump voters. They're not going to be swayed by that. The scandals are fabricated. Trump is much more charismatic than this Lichtman gives him credit for. And maybe he has not had, not had military or foreign policy successes, but he has been extremely successful in terms of what the base cares about. 
He said he'd build a wall. Congress did everything they could to sabotage the wall. Paul Ryan sabotaged the wall. Trump managed to build a wall almost 500 miles by the end of the year. And that's despite a pandemic and despite having very little congressional funding. It was all done through the executive orders, through the courts, you know, through the military emergency funding. How did he do that? You talk about Soleimani. You talk about ISIS. You talk about the embassy move. I mean, you talk about forcing NATO to pay up. I mean, Trump has had win after win, the tax cuts. Uh, he has had so many wins, so many of his campaign promises that he's actually followed through with. So where is that on the Lichtman model? Look, that's my take. That is the Yaakov M take. And, and I just, I, I honestly can't, I know some of you are panicky. It could change. But as of now, August 9th, I cannot envision a situation. Trump supporters are going to come out and drove. Biden droves. Biden supporters are like so miserable that Biden is their candidate. And that's he hasn't even come out of the basement yet and, 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 and debated Trump. All right, Fox Voice, so much to get to here. Fox 5 DC uh, reports that a man who was released from jail because of COVID-19 has gone on to murder somebody, 26-year-old inmate. He was released by a judge due to the coronavirus. Uh, this is a, a man from Maryland, Justin Wilson, age 26, from Germantown, Maryland. He stabbed a man to death after being released over COVID-19. I mean, he was he was awaiting trial on charges of theft and other crimes, and a judge ordered him released in April. This is according to Fox 5 DC. July 23rd, he got into a struggle with a man, and he stabbed the man, and um, then he's been arrested once again on first-degree murder charges. Let's hope they actually keep him behind bars this time, but it's so egregious. I mean, it's so heartbreaking and tragic. This kind of story, and Breitbart is reporting that a man who was charged with violent assault, a man charged with violent assault, he was released on bail because of the coronavirus in Virginia. He has allegedly shot and killed his accuser. So he went back to the accuser who was accusing him. You believe this man was charged with violent assault, and they let him free. How, how heartbreaking, how tragic and unspeakable is that, that this accuser was just walking, uh, you know, this this accuser was out there, and this man was actually let free because of the coronavirus. They let him out on bond despite, despite uh, being accused of committing a violent crime, and then he went back and killed his accuser. Uh, we have so much more to get to. All right, let me just get to one more story here because uh, we're really at, almost out of time. NPR is reporting that John Brennan is not a target of the Durham investigation. Yes, NPR has a source that says that former CIA director under Obama, John Brennan, is not a target of the Durham investigation. And am I supposed to get disappointed here? Are they letting it seep out here slowly that, well, Biden's not a target, Obama's not a target, now John Brennan's not a target, then we're going to hear Sally Yates and James Comey, like, and they're just going to like break us the news, like they're going to let it dribble out you know, one day after the next. To kind of uh, brace ourselves. I mean, it's just, I don't know what to think anymore. So, look, it may be fake news, but that's what NPR is reporting. What happened is John Brennan ha has been questioned by the Durham team, uh, but they're saying it's just a formality. They weren't questioning him as a target. He was assured that they just wanted to go over some technical matters with him, and the source says he's not going to be charged. Now, John Brennan was a corrupt CIA director, allegedly corrupt, I guess, you know, who lied to Congress. I'm going to read you here a quote from Tucker Carlson of Fox News. John Brennan lied to Congress. So I just want to tell you, the Washington Examiner says as follows. While Brennan may not be indicted, he may yet be harshly criticized in a report. A.G. Barr said he expects developments from Durham's inquiry by the end of the summer. So they're like consoling us here, the Washington Examiner, which is a pretty conservative paper. They're consoling us and saying, all right, yeah, he's not going to be indicted, John Brennan, but he may still be harshly criticized. Well, gee, harshly criticized. Here we go. Who was it who said one of the congressmen who said, 
this is a criminal investigation. You're supposed to find criminals. You're supposed to indict them. It's not about a report. This is not supposed to give me a Well, okay. Here's good news and bad news. And look, I'm just projecting over here. You know, uh, Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, you name it. None of them have been indicted. No, no indictments from Durham, but they've been harshly criticized. They got scathing criticism in the report that John Durham put out. Well, thank you very much. Great. They get criticized. You know, Trump's people, they get indicted one after the next by Bob Mueller and the uh, Obama corrupt DOJ, who really is corrupt, who really did commit crimes, they got criticized. They really got blasted in the, in, in the report on all that, that paper. Wow. I mean, it's just it's just egregious. Look, we have to wait and see what happens. But I'm like, I'm getting ready here, you know, for the inevitable. So let me read you here from Tucker Carlson about John Brennan. Quote, in the spring of 2017, Brennan told the House Intel Committee that the Steele dossier played no role in the creation of an Intel community assessment on Russian interference. It was presented to both President Obama and President-elect Trump. Brennan was not vague about this. He said unequivocally on camera, the dossier was totally irrelevant in the community, the intelligence assessment on Russian interference that was created by the Intel community. But that was a complete lie. The IG report proves it, that it was a lie. The Steele dossier was, in fact, a major element of the intelligence assessment, and Brennan in particular found it very important. In other words, John Brennan, not a close call here, perjured, him, perjured himself on camera in front of the world. That was the word. Those are the words of Tucker Carlson on Fox News discussing John Brennan, who is not going to be indicted. All right, tomorrow, we'll have to get to this story tomorrow. Lindsey Graham says that the FBI misled the Senate in 2018 about the Steele dossier and about Obamagate. So that and a lot more coming up tomorrow. That's going to do it for today, and we will see you next time.